Chapter 8 of A Float on the Ohio, An Historical Pilgrimage of a Thousand Miles in a Skiff, From Redstone to Cairo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robert Hoffman. A Float on the Ohio by Reuben Gold Thwaites. Chapter 8 life ashore and afloat marietta the plymouth rock of the west the little kanawha the story of blennerhassett's island blennerhassett's island sunday may thirteenth the day broke without fog at our camp on the rocky steep above marietta the eastern sky was veiled with summer clouds all gaily flushed by the rising sun and in the serene silence of the morning there hung the scent of dew and earth and trees in the east the distant edges of the west virginia hills were aglow with the mounting light before it had yet passed over into the river trough where a silvery haze lent peculiar charm to flood and bank up river one of the three brother isles dark and heavily forested seemed in the middle ground to float on air a bewitching picture this until at last the sun sprang clear and strong above the fringing hills and the spell was broken the steamboat traffic is improving as we get lower down last evening between landing and bedtime a half dozen passed us up and down breathing heavily as dragons might and leaving behind them foamy wakes which loudly broke upon the shore before morning i was at intervals awakened by as many more a striking spectacle the passage of a big river steamer in the night you hear fast approaching a labored pant suddenly around the bend or emerging from behind an island the long white monster glides into view lanterns gleaming on two lines of deck her electric searchlight uneasily flitting to and fro first on one landmark then on another her engine bell sharply clanging the measured pant developing into a burly, all-pervading roar, which gradually declines into a pant again, and then she disappears as she came, her swelling wake rudely ruffling the moonlit stream. We caught up with a large lumber craft this morning, descending from Pittsburgh to Cincinnati. The half-dozen men in charge were housed midway in a rude little shanty, and relieved each other at the sweeps, two at bow and two astern. It is an easy lounging life most of the way, with some difficulties in the shallows and in passing beneath the great bridges. They travel night and day, except in the not infrequent windstorms blowing upon the stream, and it will take them another week to cover the three hundred miles between this and their destination. Far different fellow these commonplace raftsmen of today from the lumber boys of a half century or more ago when the river towns were regularly painted red by the men who followed the ohio by raft or flatboat life along shore was then more picturesque than comfortable later we stopped on the ohio shore to chat with a group of farmers having a sunday talk their seat a drift log in the shade of a willowed bank they proved to be market gardeners and fruit growers well-to-do men of their class and intelligent in conversation all of them descendants of the sturdy new englanders who settled these parts while the others were discussing small fruits with these transplanted yankees who proved quite as full of curiosity about us as we concerning them 
I went down shore a hundred yards, struggling through the dense fringe of willows, to photograph a junk boat just putting off into the stream. The two rough-bearded, merry-eyed fellows at the sweeps were setting their craft broadside to the stream, that, quote, the current might have more hold of her, the chief explained. They were interested in the Kodak, and readily posed as I wished, but wanted to see what had been taken, having the common notion that it is like a tin-type camera, with results at once attainable. They offered our party a ride for the rest of the day if we would row alongside and come aboard, but I thanked them, saying their craft was too slow for our needs, at which they laughed heartily, and, load, we might be traitors, too, anxious to get in ahead of them. But there's plenty of room on the river for you and we, stranger. Well, good luck to yees. We'll see you down below somewhere, I reckon. Just before lunch we were at Marietta, at the mouth of the Muskegum, 171 miles. A fine stream, here 250 yards wide. A storied river, this Muskegum. We first definitely hear of it in 1748, the year the original Ohio Company was formed. Celeron was here the year following, with his little band of French soldiers and Indians, vainly endeavoring to turn English traders out of the Ohio Valley. Christopher Gist came, some months later, then the trader Krogan, for Old Wyandotte Town, the Indian village at the mouth, was a noted center in western forest traffic. Moravian missionaries appeared in due time, establishing on the banks of the Muskegon the ill-fated convert villages of Schönbrunn, Gnadenhutten, and Salem. In 1785, Fort Harmar was reared on the site of Wyandotte Town. Lastly, in the early spring of 1788, came, in Ohio River flatboats, that famous body of New England veterans of the Revolution under General Rufus Putnam, and planted Marietta, the Plymouth Rock of the West. We smile at these Ohio pilgrims for dignifying the hills which girt in the Marietta bottom, with the names of the seven on which Rome is said to be built. For having a Camp Martius and a Sacra Via and all that out here among the sycamore stumps and the wild Indians. But a classical revival was just then vigorously affecting American thought, and it would have been strange if these sturdy New Englanders had not felt its influence, fresh as they were from out of the shadows of Harvard and Yale, and in the awesome presence of crowds of huge monumental earthworks, whose age in their day was believed to far outdate the foundations of the eternal city itself. They loved learning for learning's sake, and here, in the log cabins of Marietta, eight hundred miles west of their beloved Boston, among many another good thing that they did for posterity, they established the principle of public education at public cost, as a national principle. They were soldier colonists. Washington, out of a full heart, for he dearly loved the West, said of them, no colony in America was ever settled under such favorable auspices as that which has just commenced at the Muskegon. Information, property, and strength will be its characteristics. I know many of the settlers personally, and there never were better men calculated to promote the welfare of such a community. And when, in 1825, Lafayette had read to him the list of Marietta pioneers, nearly fifty military officers among them, he cried, I know them all. I saw them at Brandywine, Yorktown, and Rhode Island. They were the bravest of the brave. Yet, for a long time, Marietta met with small measure of success. Miasma, Indian ravages, and the conservative temperament of the people combined to render slow the growth of this western Plymouth. 
There were, for a time, extensive shipbuilding yards here, but that industry gradually declined, with the growth of the railway systems. In our day, Marietta, with its 10,000 inhabitants, prospers chiefly in a market town and an educational center, with some manufacturing interests. We were struck today, as we tarried there for an hour or two, with the remarkable resemblance it has in public and private architecture, and in general tone, to a typical New England town, say, for example, Burlington, Vermont. Omitting its riverfront and its mound cemetery, Marietta might be bodily set down almost anywhere in Massachusetts, or Vermont, or Connecticut, and the chance traveler would see little in the place to remind him of the West. I know of no other town out of New England of which the same might be said. Below Marietta, the river bottoms are, for miles together, edged with broad stretches of sloping beach, either deep with sand or naturally paved with pebbles, sometimes treeless, but often strewn with clumps of willow and maple and scrub sycamore. The hills, now rounder, less ambitious, and more widely separated, are checkered with fields and forests, and the bottom lands are of more generous breadth. Pleasant islands stud the peaceful stream. The sylvan foliage has by this time attained very nearly its fullest size. The horse-chestnut, the pawpaw, the grape, and the willow are in bloom. A gentle pastoral scene is this through which we glide. It is evident that it would be a scalding day but for the gentle breeze astern. Setting sail, we gladly drop our oars, and, with the water rippling at our prow, sweep blithely down the long southern reach to Parkersburg, West Virginia, at the mouth of the Little Kanawha, 183 miles. In the full glare of the scorching sun, Parkersburg looks harsh and dry but it is well built, and as seen from the river, apparently prosperous. The Ohio is here crossed by the once famous million-dollar bridge of the Baltimore and Ohio Railway. The wharf is at the junction of the two streams, but chiefly on the shore of the unattractive Little Kanawha, which is spanned by several bridges, and abounds in steamers and houseboats moored to the land. Clark and Jones did not think well of the Little Kanawha lands, Yet there were several families on the river as early as 1763, and Trent, Krogan, and other Fort Pitt fur traders had posts here. There were only half a dozen houses in 1800, and Parkersburg itself was not laid out until ten years later. Blennerhassett's Island lies two miles below, a broad, dark mass of forest at the head joined by a dam to the West Virginia shore, from which it is separated by a slender channel. Blennerhassett's is some three and a half miles long. Of its five hundred acres, four hundred are under cultivation in three separate tenant farms. We landed at the upper end, where Blennerhassett had its wharf, facing the Ohio shore, and found that we were trespassing upon the Blennerhassett pleasure grounds. A seedy-looking man, who represented himself to be the proprietor, promptly accosted us and levied a lending fee of ten cents per head, which included the right to remain overnight. A little questioning developed the fact that thirty acres at the head of the island belonged to this man, who rents the ground to a market gardener, together with the comfortable farmhouse which occupies the site of Blennerhassett's mansion, but reserves to himself the privilege of leveling toll on visitors. He declared to me that fifteen thousand people came to the island each summer, generally in large railway and steamboat excursions, which gives him an easily acquired income sufficient for his needs. 
it is a pity that so famous a place is not a public park the touching story of blennerhassett's is one of the best known in western annals rich in culture and worldly possessions but wildly impracticable harman blennerhassett and his beautiful wife came to america in seventeen ninety eight buying this lovely island in the ohio six hundred miles west of tidewater they built a large mansion which they furnished luxuriously adorning it with fine pictures and statuary here in the midst of beautiful grounds while blennerhassett studied astronomy chemistry and galvanism his brilliant spouse dispensed rare hospitality to their many distinguished guests for in those days it was part of a rich young man's education to take a journey down the ohio into the western parts and on returning home to write a book about it but there came a serpent to this eden aaron burr was among their visitors eighteen o five while upon his journey to new orleans where he hoped to set on foot a scheme to seize either texas or mexico and set up a republic with himself at the head he interested the susceptible blennerhassets in his plans the import of which they probably little understood but the fantastic englishman had suffered a considerable reduction of fortune and was anxious to recoup and burr's representations were aglow with the promise of such rewards in the golden southwest as cortez and coronado sought blennerhassett's purse was open to the enterprise of burr large sums were spent in boats and munitions which were tradition says for a time hid in the bayou which close by our camp runs deep into the island forests it has been filled in by the present proprietor but its bold shorelines all hung with giant sycamores are still in evidence president jefferson's proclamation october eighteen o six shattered the plot and blennerhassett fled to join burr at the mouth of the cumberland both were finally arrested eighteen o seven and tried for treason but acquitted on technical grounds in the meantime people from the neighboring country sacked blennerhassett's house then came creditors and with great waste seized his property the beautiful place was still further pillaged by lawless ruffians and turned into ignoble uses later the mansion itself was burned through the carelessness of negroes and now all they can show us are the old well and the noble trees which once graced the lawn as for the blennerhassets themselves they wandered far and wide everywhere the victims of misfortune he died on the island of guernsey eighteen thirty one a disappointed office-seeker she returning to america to seek redress from congress for the spoliation of her home passed away in new york before the claim was allowed and was buried by the sisters of charity end of chapter eight recording by robert hoffman